you have a Bible, you can turn in the New Testament to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, continuing our successive reading through the New Testament in the Gospel of John. We take up in John chapter 17, verse 20, and we'll read just to the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 26. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Look at Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in their power, in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our field. Therefore, you will have none to cast line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, once more, how fitting it is to praise you for your word. Uh, for its plainness, for its weightiness. I praise you for our great 
prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes known unto us the truth of who you are and what you are doing and what you have called us to and what he has done as our great Messiah, the Christ. And be pleased to attend the word even now with the Spirit. Attend my words. Accompany them with that effectual influence which is able to build up and to bring forth faith and hope and love to retrieve the wandering, to correct. These are things that only you can do. These are things that you do in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are grateful. Posture our hearts rightly even now in meekness and humility that we may receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. One of the first lessons that the newly crowned King Arthur learns comes to him rather abruptly. He's holding a small rock on the wall of his castle, and he sees a man far below him, and he wonders out loud to Merlin, his tutor, I wonder what would happen if I dropped this rock on the head of the man down below. Merlin says it would kill him, most certainly. Arthur gets a strange look on his face. I've never killed a man that way. Merlin looks at his pupil. It's a crossroads. Merlin has invested in this young king, and now he finds himself king, and Merlin wonders what sort of king he will be. So he tells him at this crossroads, King Arthur, you are the king. No one will stop you if that's what you want to do. A pause. Arthur is considering. Remarkable power. The power of gods, so to speak. The power of life and death. The fortunes, the lives of countless subjects resting in his hand. All of a sudden, the king flings the rock towards Merlin and knocks his tutor's hat off with a fit of laughter. The lesson was simple but profound and a great relief to Merlin that his young pupil had learned it. Might does not make right. That was what sat at the profundity of King Arthur's reign. He learned it. He learned it there at the outset of his kingdom. And he spent the rest of his life trying to act out that principle, that good king. Micah delivers his first oracle of judgment here. He's opened with two sweeping oracles against the northern and the southern kingdoms. He says, you're going to fall. You have set idolatry at your heart, and the true and living God is coming in judgment. But now he turns and he addresses the specifics of the corruption that has filled the earthly kingdom of God. For that's what Israel was. Israel, in the time of the great kings of David reigning in Jerusalem, was to be the earthly face of the kingdom of God. 
These were kings who were reigning as God's vice-regents, as God's representatives. They were kings who were supposed to reflect God in the rule, in the reign, in the conduct, in the direction that the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were undertaking. And so he turns and he deals with the first specific of corruption, and he identifies leaders, the ruling class, those with authority and power, and the abuse that had attended it to the great harm of God's people. Now, he doesn't exactly specify who this is. It's rather broad. It's rather vague. You're given the sense that this is basically anyone with an ounce of authority or power. (laughs) Basically anyone that has even sniffed influence in Israel, using that influence for selfish gain at the harm of others. That's the phrase he uses. He says, those who have the power in their hand. It's a remarkably broad phrase. He doesn't say it's restricted to the kings. He doesn't say it's restricted to the priests. He doesn't say it's restricted to any class in particular. It's anyone who has the ability is using that ability to advance their own agenda. Woe to you. Woe to you who mistake the position and the abilities that God has given you as an opportunity for your gain at others' expense. That was the first heart of corruption in Israel, as set forth by the prophet Micah. We're invited into this text in a couple different ways. I'll profile just two. First, we all have authority and power. We all have influence, either formally or informally. Some more, some less. It's true of men and women alike. As authority, power, and influence are not always official, but they're real. They're real nonetheless. And the call of God is plain. Whatever we have been given in terms of our position and ability is not first and foremost to advance our own gain. The principle of the kingdom of God, the regime of the Lord Jesus Christ, under whom we serve, to whom our loyalty is sealed in his blood, is such that we now understand that all of the influence that we wield, all the positions that we occupy, are first and foremost in the service of God and the good of others. And this is the second angle that we have on this text. The corruption that we see on display And these rulers, the corruption that we know all too well as we continue to wrestle with the fleshly inclinations of our hearts, which would seize upon all of our earthly advantages to generate further advantage, all of it is put to shame in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is rich beyond all splendor and for love's sake became poor as the Son of Man came not to be served, not to exploit others for his gain, but to serve and thereby showcase the glory of this abundantly gracious God. And so we consider this morning not just the corruption of our hearts, but the matchless excellency of our King, 
in his willingness to set aside riches to make us rich beyond description. So consider with me, first, the ugliness of greed and coveting. Second, the beauty of our God. Third, the horror of judgment. And fourth, the beauty of our king. That's right, four this morning, not three. <laughs> so we're going to be here for an hour and 15 minutes. Just kidding. The ugliness of greed, verses one and two. Woe to those who divide, devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Surely the first person that comes to mind is King Ahab. We know that story, don't we? How this king and his queen were treacherously involved with putting a man to death, murdering a man, simply to acquire a desirable plot of land. Well, I wanted a better view. I wanted the lovely vineyard that he had. And so his life can certainly be disposed of. But we also know that in Israel, debt slavery was a very real threat. Someone fell upon hard times economically, and they had to sell themselves essentially into slavery. They had to forfeit their land for a time and forfeit their persons. But there were mechanisms in place in Israel for that not to be a permanent situation. It would be released at a certain time, but we know that Israel's rulers weren't super keen on observing the divine law. And so what ended up happening was a permanent forfeiture of land, the wrongful exploitation of circumstances once more to grow in a state. All of which is to say that there were a number of different ways in which God's people were vulnerable to exploiting others. The brazen murder of King Ahab or the more lawful and seemingly legitimate looking exploitation of lending and not releasing from debt. So Micah brings this word to all involved in this and he says, you're ugly. You who are rich and usually look quite nice and dressed in nice things and have a certain facade of loveliness, you're ugly. You're hideous. You're disgusting. I'm going to tear the curtain back on the truth of who you really are. Look at verses 1 and 2. It's a consuming greed. They can't stop thinking about it. It devours them day and night. Even the evenings and the nighttime is filled with devising ways to get more. Someone's haunted in their bed just thinking monstrously, I need to have this, I need to have this, I need to have this, I can get this, I can get this. This diabolical refrain running. And then the early bird catches the worm, or rather the early bird exploits the poor, in this instance, as the light of morning is seized upon, and they're off and running, to execute the evil that they've spent the night devising. And a river runs through it. The younger McLean says there are three things a man is never late for. Dinner, church, and fishing. The portrait here is never late for evil. 
You're punctual in carrying out your ill designs. And so not only does it consume, but its consuming power perverts and distorts. Even the natural order is suspended. Catch that subtlety. What do you do at night? You're supposed to sleep. That's the natural order of things. In God's common grace, even the wicked are forced to cease from their evil in the form of physical sleep. God naturally pauses all evil at least for four hours a night because you gotta sleep, not these. They're willing to even upend nature, suspend the natural order for the filling out of their wickedness. And then the light, the light which is supposed to expose, the light which is supposed to unveil wickedness. Instead, it's filled with wickedness. It's used as an opportunity for underhanded dealings. They suspend and pervert nature in their evil and it's an evil that brings great harm unto others. You hear that in this refrain. Houses, they oppress a man and his house. They oppress a man and his inheritance. This isn't just stuff being moved from one place to another. <laughs> As if it were just a random collection of molecules that happened to take the form of a vineyard, and now it passed to another collection of molecules. This is people being destroyed. These are families being destroyed. It is an evil, a greed, a covetousness that views people as things to be removed at one's leisure for the appropriation of things. Think about how base that is. I'm sorry, you did what to another human being? Another image bearer of God? You did what? You treated them how? To get what? A thing? A, f a field? You, you killed a person to get a field? You destroyed an image bearer to get a cow? Shame on you, he says. You're ugly. You're beastly. Animals do that. Monsters do that. Human beings don't do that. Shame on you. You're my people. You're my image bearers. You ought to know better. And that's the heart of this indictment. Covetousness amongst God's people defies God. Look at the last word. His inheritance. That's a loaded word in Israel. You're not just taking land as such. You're not just taking a vineyard as such. You're not even just taking a family as such. You're taking the portion that God has given to his people. And you know this because I told you. You know this because I reminded you. You know this because it says so plainly in my word. The division of Israel was not a random happenstance in terms of what people had. It was the provision of God setting forth plainly the truth of who he was as their provider, God. 
as the one who took himself a people and established them in a land and ensured that everyone had a portion in his blessed presence. The rulers here looked contemptuously on all of that. But not just that. They looked contemptuously on what they had been given for they had their own portions to be content in as well. And the greedy desiring of the portions of others was not just despising the portions that others had been given, it was despising their own portions. They had been consumed with what they could see. They had been taken over by that deceitful monster, Mammon. In Lord of the Rings, Bilbo is very unwilling to give up his precious ring. Even at the kind counsel of Gandalf, his faithful friend, who had shown his superior abilities in multiple instances through Bilbo's life. But when it came time for Gandalf to say, I think you should leave the ring to Frodo, because Bilbo didn't want to hear it, he rose up against his faithful friend as if he was an enemy. And the same instance occurred later after he had given the ring. He glimpsed it on his beloved nephew's necks and seeing it there for a minute, he became a monster. Again, consumed with the desire to have that gold, to have that thing. We're all vulnerable. There's a reason Christ calls it mammon, infusing it with a sort of power. Paul says that wealth is the root of much evil. Again, acknowledging that it has a certain allure, a certain power to it. And God's word here warns us that it's not just an external power, but it's an internal corruption. It's something we continue to bear in us. This is God's people. They're not immune to this foolish thinking. James gives us a slightly different angle on this same tendency of the heart in James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. Again, a couple of verses here. So everybody hang with me. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Okay, that was a little bit of a lengthier passage. You might call this passage denouncing Christian coveting. What do I mean by Christian coveting? Well, in the Micah passage, they see a specific portion and they're consumed with how to get that exact portion. Like, I need to have that thing. Like, it wasn't just, oh, Naboth has a nice vineyard. I'd like to get a vineyard. It was, no, no, I'm going to take this vineyard even if it means killing Naboth. Christian coveting is a little bit different, especially 21st century Christian coveting, where we don't see someone's portion and think, oh, I've got to have that exact portion and kill that person. It's, I'd like to have something like that portion, and I'm not going to be satisfied until I do. And I'm comfortable resenting that person for the portion that they've been given until I get the equivalent of that portion. That's closer to what James is talking about here. Did you hear it? But the net result is the same. <laughs> he says, you're fixed on earthly gain. Same as Micah. 
Same as the rulers say, you're, you're, you're obsessed with earthly gain. All you talk about is, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. I've got this scheme. I've got that scheme. I've got this endeavor. I've got that endeavor. I've got this on the side. I've got this on the side, and I'm going to get it. But the net result is what? It's the exact same as Micah's denouncement. It's practical desensitization towards God. You should have said, if God willed. You're not even interested in, in what God wills. You're not even interested in submitting your plans unto the Lord. All you care about is what you want to realize. So it's desensitization towards the Lord and deprivation of neighbor. That's what he closes with, isn't it? So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. In becoming consumed and obsessed with earthly gain, you deprive others of the good you should be rendering unto them as you heed the call of Christ upon your life. So it might look a little bit more socially acceptable than Micah's ruling class, but in our intensely materialistic time, especially given our vulnerability to see most things as lawful, right? That's what we content ourselves with. Well, it's not wrong to want a house. Well, yeah, it's wrong to hate someone or resent someone or grumble against the Lord when you see someone with a better house in your mind and you're then moved to be dissatisfied until you get that and then you get it and you realize, oh, that wasn't the issue. That didn't satisfy. So on to the next thing. <laughs> That's the cycle. That's the consuming. That's the lie, the deceit. And it's ugly. And James is writing to the church. <laughs> Are we immune from it? No. Are we undone by the realization that we all possess that corruption? No. Are we humbled? I hope so. We ought to be. The recognition of that particular face of our corruption postures us towards the Lord in seeking and understanding satisfaction in what he does give. What does this show up as? How many of you work on the Sabbath? How many of you are able to cease from worldly labors for a day? Just one. The Lord is so kind. He's like, look, six days, all sorts of lawful endeavors. Just one. Leave it alone. As trust. Do you trust me? Do you, do you trust me? Do you, do you trust that I love you? Do you trust I'll give you? I'm not going to withhold from you anything. Do you trust me? Just rest for one day. Look, your hope isn't in this world anyway. Your confidence isn't in how much stuff you get. You can leave off earthly labors for one day. I promise you'll be fine. And not only that, I've prepared a feast for you. Morning and evening. Come around the table that I've prepared for you. Enjoy your brothers and sisters in the Lord who also don't have their hope tethered to the course of this world. Encourage one another as you set your face towards the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to give us everything necessary for life and godliness. Don't just put down your earthly labors. Take up the heavenly rest. Take up the taste, which is going to be yours forevermore when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. How about fathers? Fathers, are you so consumed with work that you don't spend time with your kids? You got to gain, got to get, got to advance. This one hit me right in the heart, right, right in the tummy, doubled over. It's easy for me to get so consumed with work that I begin to deprive my family of the good that I owe them, the blessing that Christ has called me to be unto them. You ever been to someone's house and coveted? 
You become so consumed by a particular vision of earthly wealth, this or that furniture, this or that decor. Oh, these people have it all together. They have so much. Why don't I have this? And you deprive that person of the good that you owe them, rejoicing with them in the good that God has done to them. And perhaps you deprive your brothers and sisters in the Lord because you start to feel inferior in terms of your earthly portion. You're a little less willing to open up your home and be hospitable with whatever you've been given. Desensitivity towards God, depriving one another. It's the same thing under Micah. Do you see it? Have I made a good case? Am I speaking plainly? You guys are all blank, so I assume so. <laughs> the Lord takes exception when his people forget him as their portion and begin to act as pagans do, as if we only have hope in this life. And so we can see flickered here in God's heart against such an action, the beauty of God's heart. The beauty of God's heart on display that tells his people, stop it, stop it, stop it. Well, why? Why does he so forcefully tell them to get off this destructive road? Because it is antithetical to who he is. The God who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives ad infinitum. It's repugnant to be so greedy, to be so miserly. Ebenezer Scrooge in the face of a world in need. For God's people, it's appalling. They knew, they knew he was gracious and merciful. They knew he was good to all. They knew he gave to all. He opens his hand freely for all and all find their satisfaction, not even in the things that he gives, but in him and from him. This was appalling for Israel because they knew. They also knew he's near to the lowly, the very ones that the ruling class is exploiting. How did they know? Because they were the lowly. They were the ones who were being exploited by Egypt. They were the ones who were being oppressed by Egypt. This intimate understanding of God's nearness to the lowly was the basis for Israel's command to be merciful to the lowly, <laughs> to be compassionate to the lowly. You heard it in the commandment on the Sabbath. Even the sojourner among you, even your manservant and female servant are to rest because you were sojourners. Because you were servants in a different household. Therefore, act towards them with compassion, understanding, decency, and fairness. And that was the other thing they knew. They knew God was a righteous God. They knew God was one of justice. We heard it in Psalm 97, didn't we? Your throne, O Lord, the foundation of your throne are righteousness and justice. God is not only good, he's fair. He's going to call to account everyone who seizes upon their position for their illicit gain at the expense of others. Israel knew that as well as they watched as this oppressing titan was brought low by the justice of God. They understood who he was. They understood that he was wonderful. And they were called to reflect him in their various circumstances and position. But they didn't. And as such, they became subject to God's wrath. 
And so we can consider next the terrors of his judgment. That's how it ends, this little oracle, verses 3 through 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removed it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. We see here the principle of lex talionis. The fittingness of God's judgment. The fittingness of justice on display. That according to the specifics of the crime, so will be the specifics of the punishment. Have you read Dante's Inferno? It's a classic Western literature. The poet journeys and he sees on display the poetry of God's justice as the specifics of the sinner are brought to bear in a fitting measure in the punishment that they now endure. And even as a mortal moved with compassion, he can see the fittingness of judgment. And that's what Micah declares here, the fittingness of judgment. It comes out clear in the Hebrew, but I'll show it to you here. Verse 1. He says, woe to those who devise wickedness. And then look at verse 3. The Lord announces that he is devising disaster. The word for wickedness and the word for disaster are nearly identical. Ra and ra'ah. They're devising wickedness. So they said, fine, I'm going to employ my creative capacities to do you harm. If you're going to take all of the gifts that I give you and work them to the woe of others, woe to you. I'm going to take who I am and I'm going to work it to your woe, crime, punishment. Against those who walk in arrogance, thinking that they are above the law, because that's what this is. It's like Arthur confronted with that moment of divine power. I can be the arbiter of fates. I can be the allotter of portions. Ooh, that's delicious. So few can resist it. Would you resist it? I mean, think about how basically most of our evil is curbed by the fact that we don't have the opportunity. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have the position. So he says to you who walk arrogantly as gods, ostensibly, writing your will as law. Well, I'm going to devise a yoke. You're not going to walk around haughtily anymore. Your neck is going to be brought into subjugation. The subjugation under which you really were as you occupied these positions. And it was not an invitation towards autonomy to write law. It was an understanding that was supposed to reign that your positions were governed by law. Divine law. My law. I'll devise a yoke. If you don't see it now, you will. I'll show you. We might also point out here that the assumption of yoke is that an animal bears it. Who's yoked? An animal. He says, okay, fine. If you want to act inhumanely, I'll treat you like inhumane entities. Animals <laughs> brought under a yoke. We heard it in the psalm. Be not like senseless mule and horse who cannot understand. Beasts who need to be curbed by bit and bridle. He's saying, shame on you. You're acting like beasts. 
You could have been reflecting the true and living God. Truly human. I'll treat you as such. I'll devise a yoke. You want to be monsters, beasts? I'll treat you as that. Look at the taunt song. What's a taunt song? A taunt song is pressing someone's helplessness upon them. He says, you made others to feel their helplessness. There was nowhere for them to turn in my kingdom. In my kingdom, there was nowhere for my people to turn to get a fair shake because you had corrupted every institution. You had filled every position with the base desires of the human heart, leaving those craving righteousness helpless. I'm going to make you feel your helplessness. Your enemy is going to take up a taunt song. So that when you are rendered helpless, you know it. And you'll know that this is my judgment. The other one is the destruction of the properties. There's something remarkably fitting about this. To an apostate, he allots our fields. No, you're the apostate. You are the apostate who took the fields of others. <laughs> so what is he doing? He's taking what you took and he's, giving, he's showing you exactly what you did. You deprived the rightful possession of my people. You took it unto yourself as apostates. I'm going to do the same thing to you when I give everything that you have to Assyria, to Babylon. And you'll know, hopefully, then, that this is because of your sin. That this is because of your fleshly tendency to put your hope in earthly wealth and not the true and living God. In War and Peace, Vasily Kurigan works tirelessly to ensure that the vast wealth of Count Kirill Bazukov did not pass to Pierre. Count Bazukov is the wealthiest man in Russia. Vasily Kurigan is a scoundrel. <laughs> And he's simply trying to ensure that that portion doesn't pass to Pierre and thus out of his orbit. He fails. But as he witnesses Count Bazukov die, he saw for a moment, in that instant, that the Count's wealth availed for nothing in the face of death. And it gave him pause just for a moment. If the thing that I am working so tirelessly to obtain did not avail this man at the time of his death, is it really worth striving after? Is it really worth expending a life to obtain when it's taken in an instant and shown to avail for nothing? It's a lesson we need to continually learn, isn't it? I wish it were one of those lessons which were a sort of one-and-done thing. <laughs> Check that box, flip that switch, but it's not. It's one that we are continually called back to as we are tempted to freight our hope in the things of this world, in an earthly possession, forgetting that we have no lasting city here. We seek the city that is to come. That we serve a king whose kingdom is not of this world. The riches of which kingdom are not to be calculated in the weight of gold or the purity of silver or Bitcoin, which seems remarkably unstable, but rather in virtue, in faith and hope and love. 
in confidence towards one who has purposed our good against all odds. <laughs> For we know these hearts, we continue to wrestle with these hearts, and when the plain testimony is, I know you have these hearts, that's why I sent this king, the one who was rich beyond all splendor. And so we can close just with a brief consideration of the beauty of our king. The New Testament can't get enough of juxtaposing Jesus with the rulers of this world. That's what he does at the beginning of Matthew. Consider Herod. Consider Jesus. You tell me who's the better king. <laughs> Consider Pontius Pilate. Consider Jesus. You tell me who's the better ruler. The one who, out of fear for the people, tries to give the people what they want, even though it means undermining justice. The one who's so afraid that his earthly portion is going to be taken from him that he's willing to kill the most helpless in the kingdom. And Herod made for a decree that every child under two should be killed that day. Why? So he could keep his small patch of dust and ashes. Or the one who did not count equality with God as a thing to be seized upon. The word there means exploited for his own gain. He didn't consider the glory that he enjoyed with God as something to be exploited for his own gain, but willingly set it aside to become a servant. The one who was rich beyond comprehension became poor. And that's what Paul says explicitly, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. This matchless king, <laughs> the one who by divine right had title to everything, it was all his, he set it aside. Donald McLeod makes the, I think, profound observation that when Satan tempted the Lord Jesus Christ to turn stones into bread, could he have? Of course he could have. How do you know he could have? He essentially did the same thing when he took a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and transformed it into enough to feed 5,000. What's the difference? He didn't serve himself. He didn't come to serve himself. He came to serve others. He came to give himself for the satisfaction of others. And that's how the passage ends. For your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He's not talking about earthly portfolios there. He hasn't promised you a mansion on a hill overlooking the ocean. He hasn't promised you any minimum threshold for your retirement account. He has promised you that you belong to him. That you are the object of his love. And the riches of God in the form of forgiveness, righteousness, peace have passed unto you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've been given the down payment of your inheritance, namely the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Lord of glory dwells with you 
most intimately, day in and day out. Who could ask for anything more? It is to the degree that God's word shines forth clearly in what we have been given in this matchless king, the riches that have passed unto us as true participants in the kingdom which will have no end. It is the degree to which that shines forth before our hearts, before our minds, that we will be enabled to steward over whatever specifics of an earthly portion we have been given, to use them rightly, to use all of our influence, all of our positions, whatever authority in terms of formal authority or informal authority, under the governing question of how do I glorify God by using what he has given me to bless others. For that is exactly what Christ did. And we are the beneficiaries now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, give us a greater glimpse, a clearer understanding of the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love that you have poured out on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we read the wonder that we are one in Christ, that we have been placed in him, that he is our king, he is our head, he is our Lord, he is our savior, he is our portion. Father, the riches of this, glimpsed even in a flicker, are certainly enough to cause all the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of your glorious grace. May this be true of us, Father, as you continue to grow us in that grace and knowledge, which will see us safely to the end. We ask these things in Christ. Amen.